over the next couple months, we have an incredible sponsor that I'm going to keep telling you about. It's Yukon River Knives. Yukon River Knives exists to support missions work in rural Alaska by providing outdoor enthusiasts with premium quality knives. A portion of every purchase goes to helping advance the gospel in rural villages in Alaska. Featuring both handmade and high-quality production knives, Yukon River Knives has curated some of the finest and most useful knives in the market. Go check out their products at yukonriverknives.com and enter Shepherd's Crook at purchase for a coupon code and a 15% discount. As you guys know, in the past, I've worked with Buck Knives. Now, I love Buck Knives, but there's a difference with a knife like that, a mass-produced knife, and the Yukon River Knives. When I think about Yukon River Knives, I'm thinking about a knife that I can give down as a legacy piece to one of my grandsons, and I'm looking forward to that. Also, their small game knife is going to be my primary knife that I use for whitetail season this year and for my boar hunting trip in the early spring. Their knives feel great in the hand, and you can just tell looking at it and the feel of it that it's a well-balanced, great knife with a sharp edge, and it's going to last for a lifetime, and not just my lifetime, but multiple lifetimes. Yes, you can go buy another stock knife, or you can check out what Yukon River is doing and get you a nice, quality, premium knife that you're going to be able to hand down to your grandkids. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I hope you all are doing well. This is a bonus slash surprise episode. I was going to release this on Monday, but decided I would go ahead and release it before the weekend. We're going to be out of town early next week, so I won't be releasing an episode on Monday. This is just all going to come out this weekend, and I hope you enjoy it. Today we're going to be talking about eschatology, and specifically I'm going to be talking about why I am a post-millennialist. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and pray. And then I want to tell you about Yukon River Knives. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. Thank you for all that you're doing. And we thank you that you are coming back. Jesus, you are uh, sitting right now on your throne. And we're thankful that your your return is promised and it is sure. And we're excited about it. In the meantime, God, help us to be faithful to do what you've called us to do wherever we are with our eschatology. Help us to be busy with the work that you've called us to do. Um, and do it in the way and the manner that you would have us do it. We love you and we praise you. Help me. I trust you will in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hope you guys are all doing great. I want to remind you about Yukon River Knives. Here we go. If you're watching on Gab, you can see the video of this right now. I just did a video review and unboxing of the Yukon River Knives small game knife. It's a phenomenal knife. And if you're looking for something that can be a good gift for friend, family member, son, something that they're going to keep for a lifetime, well, then this knife, one of the knives from Yukon River Knives, is the knife for you. They have a small game knife. They have a uh, a knife that's kind of their staple flagship knife called the Hunter that's a little bit bigger than that. They use incredible steel, and the handle and everything is so high quality. The minute you get it in your hand, you realize, oh, this is a different kind of knife. And so you can go out and get a stock knife. You can get a mass-produced knife. But why not get something with real character that's going to last you forever? It's going to be my go-to knife this fall. And uh, on both my my whitetail hunting and my boar hunting trip, and I'm just excited about it. It's a great knife. So check it out. Check out the link in the show notes, and then go and you can purchase one using the Shepherd's Crook discount code. It's just Shepherd's Crook, one, no the, just Shepherd's Crook, and you can get 15% off. Okay, let's talk 
eschatology. Let me just give you a rundown. This is going to be a little bit longer episode, so let me go ahead and give you a rundown about what this is going to be like today. First, I'm going to give you four preliminary thoughts to bring us all together and tell you what I am and am not saying. Then I want to give you three big ideas, three big bullet points that I'm going to explain why I am a post-millennialist. These are not all-inclusive. This is not all-encompassing. I am in no way an expert, but I am excited to lay this out for you and explain your position. Now, when I say it's not a matter of orthodoxy, this is not a measure of, eschatology is not a measure of Christian spirituality on the scale of, you know, an order of orthodoxy. Eschatology is important, but there are big things that we can all agree about that we really need to agree about. In fact, the eschatology video from Desiring God that almost everybody has seen at the very beginning part of that, there's some good agreements that all, all four men come to before they get into their discussion about eschatology. So I think it is important within a local church to understand that there are going to be different eschatologies across the board, but here's what I would expect from our people and what I think, Pastor, you should expect from your people. Wherever they land with eschatology, they should be able to defend that position, and we should be able to understand one another so this doesn't become what it has become in some church traditions and denominational backgrounds, that it's become a point of orthodoxy. In fact, there are many churches today that you cannot become a member of unless you are a pre-millennial, dispensational, pre-tribulation, rapture person. And if you're not that, then you're outside of their statement of beliefs and their statement of orthodoxy. And I think that's an error. So I don't want to say that eschatology is a measure of orthodoxy. And I think we, we need to keep that in mind as we're dwelling together in unity in the body of Christ. In our church, we have people that are all over the map from dispensationalists all the way to postmillennialists and, and the many people and flavors in between. And I think that that can be a good and healthy thing. I don't think it needs to be a point of division. However, we do need to challenge one another. As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. And with eschatology, I think that is important. There are implications that flow from a man or a woman's eschatology. And then there are things that can unify us for sure as well. So that needs to be said. Now, uh, I do want to say out front, this is the second preliminary thought, is as I already stated, I am not an expert in postmillennialism or eschatology. This is not something that is in my primary wheelhouse. I spend more time and have spent more time over the years thinking about pastoral ministry, thinking about systematic theology in general, with the exception of eschatology. I kind of was a pan-millennialist for many years, as the joke goes. I have spent more time thinking about the atonement and its implications. So there are other theological areas and categories and, and, and you know systems that I have spent more time thinking about. But the last three years in this post-millennial camp, I've really done a lot of reading and enjoying that whole process, but I am not an expert. Number three, this episode is not going to be comprehensive. So I'm not laying out all the reasons why I'm a post-millennialist. I'm going to lay out three big reasons why I am that I think are going to really challenge people that are across the aisle here when it comes to differing positions. I think it'll really challenge you at least to think through some of these things and think through your positions. I talked to a friend, a new friend, uh, Andrew Horville from Gab the other day, and we had this conversation. He's a premillennialist, a classic premillennialist, I believe. And I really wanted to, and I've been thinking about this post-millennial podcast for a while and explaining why I am, wanting to explain why I am 
what I am with eschatology. And so he's going to listen to this, and I hope that he's challenged by this. He, he was certainly challenging to me in our conversation about some other things. But he's going to do a response video slash audio podcast. I don't exactly know how the response is going to come out. But I'm excited for him to listen to this and for everybody else at our church and, and anybody else in between that's going to be listening. Thank you so much. This is not comprehensive. Um, and then the fourth preliminary is just a little bit of eschatology history for me. I grew up in a home that was a dispensational home, just like many of you did. My grandfather did have the hand-drawn leather basically across the room with the wire across the room, the, just the whole leather eschatology prophecy uh, drawings where he had all the dispensational drawings on it about the end times and how everything's going to happen. And that was the, the culture and the environment that I grew up in. And that was pretty much the default of the church I grew up in as well. When I became, uh, when I went to college and in 2007, a lot of things came together and my soteriology changed to a reformed soteriology. And then you need know, to start studying and reading. And at that time, I actually watched an American Vision documentary on dispensationalism. I think it was American Vision. And it was a, cre- a critique of John Nelson Darby and his theological system. And that kind of made me think, okay, I am not a dispensationalist. But from that point forward over the last seven or, or, or the, the next seven or eight years, I really just didn't know what I was. I knew Jesus was coming back and I had studied different, different positions and I just didn't know. I didn't know what I was. And that all began to change in 2018. I believe it was in 2018, late 2018, where my friends Brian and Dan were going through eschatology and they at that time were coming out of a Calvary Chapel movement, and so they were dispensationalists, and then they started reading Sam Storm's Kingdom Come, and I had already read that, but what Brian and Dan did is they just were processing out loud and did a podcast series on this, and it really got me thinking, and so I really dove into thinking through eschatology again, and then got to visit with them, hang out with them, and we went to a conference with Doug Wilson and George Grant in Moscow, Idaho, that was a missions conference, and it was about postmillennialism. And so all this kind of came together after reading uh, Heaven Misplaced by Doug Wilson and then reading, let's see, I have it here somewhere. I just had it somewhere in here. It's Paradise Restored by David Chilton. It's on my desk. It's in here somewhere, right there on the floor. Okay, I'm seeing it. Let me, let me get it. Here it is. For folks watching, the, the cover to Paradise Restored, the original cover, is really, really neat. But that book really did it for me, and I became a postmillennialist in 2019. And since that point, from 19 till today, things have really developed. I don't have all the answers. I still have questions. And I think if anybody is honest about their position on eschatology, they're going to say the exact same thing. They're going to say, you know, I don't have all the I's dotted. I don't have all the T's crossed. And when they hear other eschatologies presented and argued for, I think all of us should be able to say, yeah, I see where you're coming from. That makes sense. There are some things that really do come together. However, I don't want to make it seem like it is unimportant. I think it is important, but it isn't this point of orthodoxy like the Trinity, like the gospel, like the scriptures uh, and the authority of the scriptures and sufficiency of the scriptures like that. So all the preliminaries, I think, are out of the way. I've been a post-millennialist now for two, uh, since 2019, so <laughs> I'm not exactly a seasoned veteran. But I want to lay out these big reasons why. Okay, now let's get into it. We're going to go three big topics, okay? The first one is partial preterism from Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. The second one is the cross and the devil. It's tied into the atonement of Jesus Christ and what Jesus did or accomplished 
on the cross. And the third argument has to do also with the atonement or implications of the atonement, and it has to do with the Great Commission, and we're going to look at assorted passages from the New Testament to the Old, old, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, so let's first start with Matthew 24. All right. As you work through Matthew 24, I remember for years this being a passage where I kind of scratched my head because of the passage that everybody goes to. Jeff Durbin's done this a ton, and partial preterist Gary DeMar goes here a ton, and, and really a lot of the modern postmillennialists are partial preterists. Now, the difference between partial preterism and full preterism needs to be stated because there is a big difference. Full preterist, Max King uh, was a full preterist, and there are many full preterists still today that believe everything in Revelation is done, the second coming has already happened, and therefore there is no eternal resurrected body on this earth, that the heavenly places are up there and our bodies spiritually go up there, but we don't have this physical reign with Christ on this restored earth, and all of it is wrapped up and done. That's a simplified version, and I realize the full preterists would be like, wait, 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 there's more to it than that, uh, but we're not going there. So the partial preterism is the belief that many, much of Revelation is already done, and it's a, it's a question of the timing of prophecy. And specifically, it has to do with Matthew 23, or Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Now, why... Is this a big deal? And I, I really want to ask premillennialists to think through this because much of what I say uh, for my amillennial brothers and sisters, they're going to agree with because after all, amillennialism is pretty much an, a subset of postmillennialism. And this is the key verse that's so critical for so many. And this is stated the exact same way in um, Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. So verse 34 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All these things will take place in this generation. Okay? So now we we think through what all these things are. And in Matthew chapter 24, which comes right after Matthew 23, which is the, the woes to the Pharisees. And before that, you have... Uh, a parable of the fig tree, you have the lament over Jerusalem, you have uh, all of this right preceding the foretelling of the destruction of the temple, and then we hear signs of the end of the age right after hearing Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then we're told, tell us when these things take place in verse 3. And then all these things about the signs of the end of the times are being told. And then we're told about the um, man of law, or that, that what we're told about lawlessness increasing, the love of many growing cold, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. And by the way, think about Acts chapter 2 and the gospel uh, going forth. And then tongues, the Holy Spirit, they're baptized with power. And then they begin to speak in other languages and they are from all over the world and they hear the gospel said in their own native tongue. So think about that as well when you're thinking through this. But then in verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, this is critical. When thinking about biblical prophecy, this is what often happens, okay? The original audience is viewed into a sec- the original audience is viewed by today's audience as the secondary audience in the story. And the future version or the future people are viewed as the primary audience in the story. When we read Matthew chapter 24, when we get into Mark 13, Luke 21, and these gospel accounts, 
we immediately jump to, th- to say this is the the end times. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's where we immediately go, and we think that today is the primary audience of Jesus' words, rather than thinking about them that are right there listening to Jesus speak being the primary audience. So it's a primary secondary audience thing. Same thing with with Revelation. Is the original hearers the the primary audience and then everybody that comes after them the secondary audience in mind. So they're actually being prepared, that first generation being prepared for what they're actually going to experience. The abomination of desolation. The temple being destroyed. They're actually being prepared for that. And I think that is critical in in verse 2 of being an internal testimony about what's actually going to be taking place with the temple. So, you know, I've heard it argued before. Jim Hamilton does this. Well, if we didn't have, uh, you know, uh, Josephus about AD 70, well, then we wouldn't know all of this. And yet I think here in this internal testimony, we're told that the, the temple will be destroyed without Josephus, without extra biblical literature. We're told that this will happen in this generation, that, the, that this temple will be destroyed. So then in verse 21, we get this, for there will be great tribulation, such as such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be. This is so critical. And when you're thinking as a premillennialist, especially a dispensationalist, whether you're pre, mid, or post-tribulation premillennialism, all premillennialism, you you take a dual fulfillment view of prophecy. And I, the way I struggle with dual fulfillment prophecy with this is that this is an explicit time-bounding statement because it says, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now and will never be. So if it's dual, like a dual fulfillment prophecy... How do you, it says, and will never be. Like the worst is back there. Okay. Then we get in, the story keeps going and unfolding. And then we're told the passage, for as lightning comes from the east and shines in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And we immediately think, okay, that is second coming right there. That's what it is. But we just keep reading. Immediately after the tribulation, so there's the tribulation, the, 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 what, what was happening in those previous verses that I just read, immediately after the tribulation, in those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the, he- the, the in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the earth, from the other end of heaven to the other. From one end of heaven to the other. Pause. We, we, we have a dilemma. Is this prepping them or is it prepping us primarily for what we are going to face or what the generations of the last 2,000 years have faced? When we get to, this is all said before, if this is the second coming of Christ, it seems to me that we are forced to all be full preterists if it's talking about the second coming of Christ. And that's what premillennialism, uh, premillennialism all in all, its, all of its forms, really has to struggle through and wrestle through is this passage. Because then we get to, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, everything we just talked about, when you see all these things, you know that the end, that, that he is near at the very gates. Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If premillennials are are correct, then they have to say that there that that was the second coming, and there's going to be another second coming. Th- that doesn't work. It can't be dual fulfillment, and that's what really got me and kind of stuck in my crawl. Thank you, Jeff Durbin and others. That all of these things had to have taken place, which means when we hear 
uh, from then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. The worst is back there. The worst is behind us. And the same goes with Revelation. I think that the primary audience, when we get into Revelation then, is being prepared for what they're actually going to experience. <clears throat> Therefore, most of Revelation, I think, and prophecy is already completed. So a lot of these eschatology questions deal with the timing of prophecy. And the reason why we shouldn't be arguing really big about this is because it's a theological difference when we, we think about the timing of prophecy that is consequential, but it isn't, again, a point of orthodoxy. So the worst behind us. Now, in my mind, then, if the worst is behind us, then that means we have this positive vision moving forward of something that God is doing that's better than back there. And in history, when you look at this, one of the interesting things is that in the history of the world, Christianity has so grown, and it's been proven that the gates of hell have not prevailed, and the offense of Christianity has continued to move forward and continue to move forward and continue to move forward to the point that today, yes, even in 2022, right now, we have a greater percentage of Christians in the world today, of people that claim to be Christians. 32% of the world population claims to be Christian right now. Again, not all of those are, I didn't say again already, so I didn't even say this, so I don't know why I said again, but greater percentage of people in the world claim to be Christians. We know they're all not regenerate, but they claim to be Christians than at any time in the history of the world percentage-wise. That percentage has grown. And in this country, the opposite has happened. There's been a decrease. But this Christianity is a global Christianity. And the, the, the message has continued to go forward. And there's been more and more and more and more and more Christians. And actually, the projections are that there's going to be a greater percentage of, of Christians by 2050. Now, isn't that fascinating? That there's more and more Christians in this world. What happens when there's more and more Christians? You know, given enough time, and Jesus can come back tomorrow. Um, but it, most likely, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen? The more Christians or less Christians on this earth, the worse or better the Christian or the earth is going to be. So think through these things. That's the number one reason why I am a post-millennialist. There's a lot of questions that come from that, I realize, but that's point number one. Point number two is the cross and the devil, the binding of Satan. Now, this is a point of contention. Uh, post-millennialists and amillennialists who all believe that Satan is now currently bound have to deal with 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and James chapter 4, verse 7, and we have to love it, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12. In all those instances, the, the devil is roaming around, seeking whom he may devour as a roaring lion, and we wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual forces in dark places in Ephesians chapter 6. So we have to think through, okay, somehow or another, demonic activity is still happening, and Satan is still doing something, and, and rulers in high places and these authorities, spiritual authorities, are still doing something in this earth. Postmillennialists have to agree with that because we have one Bible, and and that's what the text says. <coughs> and it's post-cross and resurrection texts, post-cross and resurrection passages. And yet, the premillennialists, as opposed to ah and, and post, have to deal with these passages that I'm about to lay out for you right now. So I'm actually going to turn here and flip to these verses and make a few comments on each verse. The first one is in 1 John. Let me flip there. I am notoriously bad at flipping and talking at the same time. So this first one comes from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. This is what Jesus showed up to do. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. A part of the incarnation... Of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that water that you guys hear right now, the bathroom upstairs is right above us, right above my office, and the water is draining. In fact, the first episode, <laughs> the first 
that I had an interview with Doug Wilson on, you can hear this going on at the exact same time I'm having the interview with Doug. So if you want to go back and listen to that original one, you'll hear the exact same thing. Distractions aside, Jesus shows up, incarnation. So this is before atonement, but this is incarnation. This is the re- this is a reason statement. He appeared. Why did Jesus appear? He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Now, these passages have to be held in contention because somehow he's a roaring lion, and yet his works are destroyed by Jesus. That's why he showed up. So did he show up to destroy the works of the devil? Did he actually do that? Or did he only set that in motion to where maybe one day in the future the works of the devil will be destroyed? And I think you have to ask, you know, think same things about the accomplishments of Jesus on this earth. Did he did he actually do something in, in this earth, or did he only set things in motion? Did Jesus just make people savable, or did he actually save people? What does incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, and ascension actually accomplish? These are questions that I think have to be reckoned with. And for me, this coincides with Revelation chapter 20 and the binding of the devil from deceiving the nations. Okay, let's think about John chapter 12, verse 30. This is a really crucial passage. Again, I think warrants deep consideration. John, this is chapter 12, verse 30. Here's what it says. Now is the judgment of this world, excuse me, verse 31. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, this is an incarnational statement, and Jesus has moved now into uh, an atonement statement where he's going into Passion Week. This is the second half of the Gospel of John, the first half of the Gospel of John, first three years of ministry, the last half from 11 forward is the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus is saying, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, this is a time statement now the ruler of this world will be cast out what do people do with that that means satan's cast out right now or jesus is saying something in god i I don't know but he's cast out right now we have to say he's cast out and we have to say he's still a roaring lion okay seeking whom he may devour that there's still we first peter chapter four peter would have been aware of this passage james would have been aware of this passage paul would have been aware of this i mean they, they would have all been aware of what jesus did to the devil so we have to hold these together, but we can't say, well, because of First Peter 5, James 4, and Ephesians 5, therefore Satan's not cast out. No, he is cast out right now. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. What about Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15? Colossians chapter 2, 14 and 15. Let's go ahead and turn there. Flip, flip, flip. Okay, here we go. And you were dead, let's start in verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He disarmed them. If rulers and authorities are armed with power, these are, I take it to be Satan and demons. They, they have these, they were ruling vice agents of, of the devil and under the devil's authority, which is under God's authority, they're going about this earth and they're doing their thing. And what Jesus came to do is disarm them here. Take your power. Take your, uh, your, your offensive weapons here. They're mine now. Jesus comes and disarms them. So in Ephesians 6, when we're putting on our armor, who's the ones that are now armed? Okay. Who's the ones that are now ready to go out and battle? And take what God is giving them. And who is the defeated foe? So we, we have to keep in mind this passage and Hebrews 2.14 when we're thinking about Ephesians chapter 6. It really gives us perspective. The the enemy that we're facing in the, the cosmic realm now is so much more defeated 
and he is, these are objective statements, he is disarmed, we should never fear the devil. Ever. He, he's a, he's a, he's a lion that we are not to be afraid of. These are very important passages. Hebrews 2.14. Listen to what Hebrews 2.14 says. So if you think and and just remember Colossians 2.14-15, Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Destroy the devil. That's what Jesus came to do. He destroyed the devil. He has the power of death. That is the devil. And and Jesus did this through his death. That's an atonement passage. So Jesus purchased his bride. Jesus died for the world, the cosmos. And Jesus disarmed rulers and authorities. And he put to death the devil. These are critical in my post-millennialism in thinking about, okay, what, what period of history are we in right now? By these passages alone, we get this. that The devil is bound. He's cast out. He is destroyed. He is put to death. And we have to carry that with us in the post-atonement passages into 1 Peter 5, 8, James 4, 7, Ephesians 6, verse 12. We have to carry that with us. Then in Revelation chapter 20, when we get to the controversial passage about the millennium, we hear the devil is bound and then he will be released. And there's mystery around that release for sure. But we, if we take this into consideration, when is he bound? And the atonement as Jesus actually disarms, cast out, destroys the work of the devil, is when I think, with my amillennial brothers and sisters, that Satan has been bound. So this is not a literal thousand years, that this represents the end of days or the end of times, as Acts chapter 2 says. And we are now uh, in the in the end, end times from Acts chapter 2 forward. So in Acts chapter 20, though, what we're told, and this is a key, I think, and it's critical, is that in, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 20, we're told this, and he seized the dragon, that ancient servant, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. This, I think, gives us insight into how all the passages I just read can be true, and 1 Peter, James, and Ephesians 6 can be true. Because we're told a specific way in which the devil is cast out, destroyed, put to death, uh, disarmed. And it is that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So something is happening through here and through the atonement that's opening up a way for the nations to not be deceived any longer. Now you got to be thinking about the Great Commission and its assorted, pa- assorted passages about this. When we, are, when we have the Great Commission given to us by Jesus... What, what's it to? It's, it's to people of all nations. It's to the nations to be discipled. And if the devil is currently bound, then he is bound from deceiving the nations, making the gospel be able to go forth into the nations. The devil still can do things, but now he is destroyed from the same kinds of deception that he was doing beforehand. So he's bound in a way, cast out in a way, destroyed in a way, and yet still active in other ways that we have to be aware of and that we have to be on the offensive about. And we have these promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The Great Commission will be accomplished. The Great Commission is not this mystery as to whether or not it will be accomplished. The Great Commission will be accomplished because in Revelation chapter 5, again, these are all wrapped up in the atonement. Jesus purchased a people for, for God from every tribe, tongue, and language. So Satan bound from deceiving the nations, the gospel of the nations, Jesus purchases people from every nation, tribe, tongue, language, ethnos, people, group, 
And then the Holy Spirit descends, empowering us to go out. And already in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit descends, the nations are hearing in their own native language, the gospel of Jesus are the mighty acts of God. Now, how cool is that all coming together? How about that for a biblical theology or a biblical survey and all these things coming together in a systematic way? Again, all these questions that, that you might be bubbled up in the surface of your mind, we're not going there because this is not a comprehensive uh, a podcast here. Okay, now, assorted passages about postmillennialism, why I think these things kind of lock together, and it's like a piece of a puzzle that just fits, and these pieces just come together. And again, prophecy timeline, when is prophecy? That's critical. The atonement's critical. Uh, the cross and the devil, the devil being bound is critical, and then these passages are critical. Uh, the, the Great Commission is, is crucial. In the Garden of Eden, Adam is given a global conquest. Go, uh, okay, subdue the earth. Um, multiply, subdue the earth. Take dominion everywhere, all over, not just in the little area, but over all the earth, okay? Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, dominion over everything. And they are to fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth. So th- that means image-bearing people taking dominion in every nook and cranny of this earth. What did Adam fail to do? He failed to do that. Well, then, there is this person, man, God-man, Jesus, who comes to be the second Adam. And what does the second Adam do? He purchases us, okay? He buys us and sends us on what? And empowers us with the Holy Spirit, a global conquest. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. That passage has got to be a head-scratcher for many amillennialists, who believe that Jesus is reigning spiritually in this, uh, reigning spiritually right now and having authority in the heavenly realms over his kingdom and has this earth, like this kingdom in the heavenly places in the spiritual realm. But Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The same authority that Jesus has in heaven. We all can visualize that and think about that and say, yes, he has absolute total authority. Jesus has absolute and total authority on earth. Total comprehensive. And then he tells us, go therefore in light of that authority that's the same in heaven and same in the earth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Global conquest. Fill every nook and cranny of this earth with image bearers who are walking humbly with me. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because it's a daunting task, right? Really? The whole earth? Global conquest? But we have to keep in mind, this is Jesus doing this. One of the things that really gets people and sticks in their crawl about postmillennialism is they think that this is going to be, and a lot of times this is paired with theonomy, that we're going to forced conversions or that we're going to get some temporal earthly leader that's like the, you know, the theocratic figurehead who's going to enforce revival on everybody with a heavy hand. Think, you know, in the history of the church, the uh, oh my goodness, what's it called? The conquest, not the conquest, whatever it is, where the church went through uh, with the uh, the crosses on their front, the crusades. And it, it, it's, it's like crusading. This is the earth being filled for the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, through gospel proclamation and gospel training. This is the kingdom of God moving throughout this earth. And when you think about the kingdom parables in the gospels, Matthew in particular, th- this slow growth over time that's given, and I, I think that's true. My friend Brian, I heard him say recently something to the effect that the that the the wheat and the tares grow together, and when Christ returns and the consummation of all things, the consummation happens, then there's going to be more wheat than tares. It's going to be a field full of wheat 
with a few tares rather than a field full of tares with a few wheat. Now, as we continue thinking through this with the Great Commission and this all authority piece, when we think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verse 7 through 17 through 19, he's talking to Peter about the church and he's saying that the gates of hell will not prevail. It's an absolute statement. And the image given is that the church is on offense and hell and everything that's hellish in this world, everything that's antichrist, everything that's evil is behind the gates and they are backtracking. And there is this assault happening on these gates from the, the kingdom of God, from the people of God, moving forward, the church, which isn't necessarily the kingdom is in the church, aren't identical things, but the church will, will prevail over the gates of hell because they're behind, they're trapped, they are, quote, unquote, bound. They're in, in retreat mode. They've been disarmed. They don't have power to do the same things because they are behind bars. The gates of hell will not prevail. So the church is marching forward. And this is this optimistic eschatology that I think is so critical in our day and has been so life-giving to me is the belief that, you know what, the church is not doomed in this life to be an utter failure and losers and get pummeled and destroyed until Christ returns and saves everything. The kingdom of darkness will not win. And a lot of people read that uh, Matthew chapter 16, let's just go ahead and go there. A lot of people read this in the exact opposite way that Jesus says it. And what he says is the gates of hell will not prevail. So when we read it and see it, let me make sure I get my eyes on it appropriately. Verse 16 through 19, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Often people read it like this. Satan will build his kingdom and the gates of heaven shall not prevail against it. And the exact opposite is said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The hell will not win. The devil will not win in this lifetime. This isn't talking about eternally. This is talking about in this time space continuum, in this era, in this age. And so I think that is optimism. And then, like I said earlier, in the history of the world, you see this objectively, the church continues to grow. More and more Christians, not less and less Christians. Um, the premillennial perspective really has to do some thinking about why Christianity has grown. Why why has it grown? Um, in our country, we, we, by the way, can't do eschatology by way of experience, just like we can't do any theology by way of experience. We have to moderate our experiences through the lenses of Scripture and let the Scripture dictate whether our experiences are right or wrong. Same thing with our eschatology. We don't do eschatology by way of newspaper or by way of looking around us to see what's happening. We go to the pages of Scripture and say, here's what I think the Scriptures teach. And again, we do that humbly with open hand. Here's what I think the Scriptures teach. Um, and this is what I can expect in the world. And this is how I should live accordingly. So God is going to bless the work of our hands. When I think about what postmillennialism really for me just changed so many things. It helped me to think multi-generationally. If we are the early church, that question, if we are right now in the early church and Jesus tarries in his return for a couple thousand years, the work of my hands really matters. What I leave to my children and grandchildren really matters. And for the longest time, you know, just like many other people, I just thought, well, I'm the last generation, man. I'm the last generation. And, uh, you know, we, we can't expect anything else. The last thing in these assorted passages we're looking at is Psalm 2 and Acts 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts chapter 2. And according to Peter, Jesus is sitting on his kingly throne right now. And as you look at the kingdom and the gospels and what the kingdom, uh, these, the kingdom passages, 
the Jesus, the kingdom of uh, the kingdom of heaven is here. You know, people say, well, my kingdom is not of this world. Of course it's not, because Satan is the ruler of this world. The world is often confused as this world, like the earthly world, the cosmos. Satan is the ruler of the way of the world. He is not the ruler of the world in the way that passage makes it seem like, because that passage is often uh, misconstrued. And I've got a friend of mine I was talking to, and he was like, yeah, and and this is my objection for the longest time with postmillennialism is my, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet, of course it's not. It's, it's otherworldly and it's busted through. Jesus came. The Spirit's here and dwelling us, empowering us to be his witnesses in all the earth and commissioning us. And the, the kingdom is here. Like the kingdom is now. Not all of it, not in its fullness, but the kingdom of God is now. There are some, are, are some aspects in the return of Christ with the, with the consummation of all things where everything, the, the fullness of the newness, the fullness of all of that will come together of the heavens and the earth. And yet, the the kingdom in the gospel it's it's a part of the gospel of Jesus. A friend of mine Josh is telling me that like it's a part of the gospel. The kingdom is a part of the gospel. Jesus' kingdom is right now here, and it's advancing. And the kingdom of heaven is uh, forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. I think it's like Matthew eleven forty four or something like that. So you you go you go and get it. You go and go after it as the Lord blesses the fruit of your hands, the work of your hands. But in Acts chapter 2, we see this connection, and then we're going to wrap it up. I've been going a long time. This is my longest podcast in a very long time. Uh, so let me flip there. Acts chapter 2. I hope this has been helpful. And I really want to submit this humbly, like I said. Okay? In Acts chapter 2, there's this connection. And this is when we see Jesus as David, who is sitting on his throne, ruling forever. Jesus really has ascended into the heavens, sat on his throne, and the same authority he has there on his throne, he has here on this earth. Jesus is really the ruler of kings, Revelation chapter 1. So in verse 25, down through, and this is Acts chapter 2, verse 28, Psalm 2 is quoted, And I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make make me full of gladness. Excuse me, this is uh, from uh, Psalm 16. In your presence, and then verse 34, he quotes from Psalm 16. 110. Sorry, I confused the Psalms there. Please forgive me. Psalm 110. Verse 34. For David will not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is sitting on the throne of David right now, reigning and ruling. He is the one sitting on the throne that um, the the promise in Second Samuel or First Samuel chapter seven that was given the one who would sit on the throne forever. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And so, for these reasons, I am a postmillennialist. Again, this is not all inclusive. This is not fully comprehensive. But I hope it gives you food for thought, and I hope it helps you understand my heart, heart towards this, which is to, to unify rather than divide. Uh, rather to divide, because I know a lot of people from our church are going to listen to this and think through this. And this isn't just a, a rah rah postmillennialism thing. I want you, my friends that are amillennial, and my friends that are pre-tribulation dispensational and classic premillennial. And our, my family, my brothers and sisters, I want them to know why and to know other perspectives. And then we can dwell together in unity in the way God would have us, I think. Being fully convinced in our own mind as God would have us. Okay, guys, I hope this has been helpful. 
please leave a rating or review on iTunes. If you're listening on iTunes, if you're following along on Gab, would you please subscribe and consider sharing this? If you want to support the show, you, you can certainly do that. I want to thank you guys so much for listening and hope to see you back. Uh, and I will be back soon. <laughs>